Hi, hi, down to Brown. It's Mila Hari, your host and guide for this conversation today. I'm super thrilled to be here, as I always am. But in particular this week, especially, this is a really, really interesting time in my life. And as you imagine, um, as you can imagine, if you're following my Instagram in the podcast's uh, journey, one, I adore this podcast, and I have decided to that it's time to move on. And this, you know, of course, people say all the time, it's a difficult decision, but I'm doing it, which I never understood until you're in that situation. I have for some time now felt that I have probably reached my energy limit with being able to produce this type of content at the cadence that we're at. And I always thought it was important to do it in this way because it's just, there's so much out there to discuss there's so much that I want, so many women I wanted to meet. And, but even now I know that even though we've done 60 plus episodes, we've done a hundred hours over content um, that's out there in audio form um, that we haven't covered at all. And our mission of freeing ourselves and understanding how to be our truest selves, be at peace with all these different messages we receive, the way we're socialized in different cultures and identities that we connect with. It's, it's a lot. And we, ha- we won't always answer. I, I can't say that this podcast has been like dusting off answered it, but I hope that we've provided meaningful progress towards having this conversation. I hope some of you have found valuable tidbits, tips, and if anything, just got good vibes from some of the episodes and the people that we've met over the course of it. I feel that this is a good time to let the content that exists speak for itself without us also repeating ourselves. And it, it, I don't want to tire your attention span either. And I, I'm really, because I'm always very honored by the attention that this podcast has received I really did not intend for it to be something not that we're some like big shot like Joe Rogan and show or you know not that I want to be Joe Rogan actually any at all um but it, it really did like become something that I was really really proud of and I'm just so honored by the women that I've met either through the show and then also the people listening I've always been amazed when people say yes to me because I'm like really like you want to spend your time volunteering? I'm not paying them. We're not getting anything out of it. It's simply because they believe in the mission and speaking to the audience. For that reason, it's really special for me. Like, you know, at the same time in my personal life this week, my husband and I are moving. It's utter chaos. This is not the aesthetic that I wanted to really be in. A bunch of boxes lying around and things uh, all over the place. But we chose this lifestyle. I can't complain. Um, it's a good, it's a good thing for our lives. But I could not think of something I wanted to do more to keep myself grounded and sane than to revisit a podcast recording. And I'm just really, it's bittersweet to know that this is my second to last recording for Down to Brown. That being said, I'm really, really excited about this episode in particular because it's a conversation I've been wanting to have. I didn't really quite know how to conceptualize it past in the past. And now I think, especially when you meet someone, sometimes the beauty of these conversations is then you start to both have this like sort of magnetic energy that feeds off each other and you start to understand what's this concept you've been trying to articulate this whole time. And I met Jagisha uh, in Berkeley, California, when she was at a fair, like an artisan fair that was taking place in a parking lot. 
I actually had just promised my husband that, you know, he was in the car. I had just spotted this whole fair and I was like, ah, oh, I know I've just done some shopping, but I really want to go and check this out. I'm a huge sucker for these types of fairs and meeting different vendors and seeing what's out there. That's not necessarily on this broad commercial scale. And I ran into Manasvi, who is the co-founder of Sari, uh, which is a jewelry brand and South Asian owned brand. And in fact, you, some of you may know that she's also working on a new idea, um, Surmay. She was sharing a booth with Jagisha, who's the founder of G Clothing and Living, our guest today. When I met Jagisha, first of all, I was like, this girl is so stylish and cool. You know, those people you meet and you're like, she looks so put together am I worthy? I just felt like a babbling brook of words and energy. And she was like, just poised and just so friendly at the same time. It just was really intimidating. Um, And she had this wonderful product. Uh, So we know textiles, South Asian textiles are just gorgeous. And especially the culture of what goes behind it with, you know, for example, block printing, there's so much richness in that space that we see in South Asia, Southeast Asia, etc. And in this case, what I really loved about it is her work is very, um, it's done with a lot of restraint as well. It's its really elegant. It's straightforward. There is a certain color palette that she follows. There's a quality to her fabrics the minute you even just come in contact with them. She actually reminds me of this quote that I saw Stanley Tucci say. I don't know if he meant for it to be a quotable quote, but he was on Ina Garten's Be My Guest show. And in his episode, he talks about how acting to him is not necessarily the secret behind it. It's not necessarily what you put in, but what you don't put in. So the type of restraint you can have in terms of what doesn't go in to make sure this is the thing that it needs to be. And I really felt that way about Jagish's artwork is that she does a, lot, a really great job of really focusing on the stuff that belongs in that art piece whether it's a bandana, it's a napkin, it's a scarf. Because my conversation with Jagisha resonated so deeply, I reached out to her and we talked on the phone. I proposed the idea of this podcast and we naturally just started to talk about this space. And what I loved about Jagisha is we're not just talking about, hey, my product is so great and this is why. She truly has a deep, deep curiosity and love and admiration and dedication to this space. She wants to see textiles and design be in a place where it's sustainable, it is responsibly done, that it really helps serve the craftsmen that are behind it. It's not just a trend. And we unpack a lot of this in the conversation. When I was doing my own research and reading on this space after talking to her about, you know, this concept of responsibility, is it upon the consumer? Is it upon the corporation or the brand and the organization selling it? Or is it shared, right? There's, I'm not saying that I know the answer. I think that's what we kind of explore is where does it sit and how much of it sits with which party? I saw this really great article about consumer behavior on Sustainable Fashion Forum written by Brittany Sierra. And she talks about when we look at consumers, there's a sort of attitude behavior gap between consumer sustainability intentions and actions. So even though people like transparency, ethical labor practices, and these sort of how is the ultimate impact done, um, many people rarely actively seek out this information when purchasing. And it's she specifically what stood out to me is the sort of systems she describes of thinking. 
I like this a lot because as you know, I'm a psychology nerd and I weave this in a lot into our conversations, but this I think helped me explain a lot is that there's system one and system two when we do everyday decisions. So we use system one when we're making decisions that are really automatic, quick, intuitive. We don't put a lot of work in. System two is slower and it requires more effort. We rely on logic, weigh our options carefully before making a decision. And what's tricky is that things like the price, how attractive it is, environmental setting, the people can help us make decisions in system one. I share this sort of academic knowledge, not because I'm trying to become a TED talk, but because it really illuminated for me this concept of how we make really quick decisions and then couple it with the fact that if maybe the packaging is just different, or let's say the influencer we have that um, talks about this, it's probably why products like Shine do so well, because even though they're incredibly irresponsible for the environment, from a sustainability aspect, from who they employ, we get drawn to the fact that maybe a really favorite person of ours, a celebrity out there has endorsed it, that it's really cute and gets the job done. It might be in a setting where we see it, you know, where people are having a really sexy brunch or on a sexy date. And we're like, you know what? I want to look like that. So it all goes into play when we make these decisions. And I, I really appreciate how Jagisha explains this to us in terms of how we can understand this landscape better and make stronger decisions. So I'll start to get into our conversation with Jagisha, but I wanted to just share a little bit about her. Jagisha is a biologist turned entrepreneur, and she found a passion for exploring artisanal skills and cultural roots through handcrafted textiles. She really, and I, I hope you hear how genuinely sincere she is about this when she talks to me, she really hopes to bring awareness around generational craftsmanship, textile heritage, and environmental responsibility. And she wants to do that by offering her thoughtfully made products. So without further ado, let's meet Jigisha. As we begin our conversation now here in this space, I'd love to hear more about what brought you here today to the Bay Area? Where did you grow up? What brought you to G Clothing and Living, etc.? So I grew up in India in a very small town, uh, 10 hours from Hyderabad. And I'm sure you know Hyderabad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my husband and I, we met in Europe. And once we got married, we needed a place to settle. And he's from here. So it was either India or here, you know, for the logistics purpose. And we chose California and eventually settled in Bay Area because his job brought him here. And then I had the flexibility of working from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Did you always um, do entrepreneur type work that was rooted in clothing and textiles? Not at all, actually. Um, I was a computational biologist and I spent a considerable amount of time in academia researching fungal pathogens in labs in various... What? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, in various parts of Europe. And then, you know, that was what my degree was in. And after many years of research, I think there came a point when that didn't excite me anymore. Mm -hmm. And during a transition period or like a break, if you will, from um, between one career position to another, I just decided to quit, basically. Absolutely. And so is that what took you to Europe? Yeah, my master's took me there and then research as well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 
Well, there seems to be something that you retained so deeply about your experience in India, uh, especially when I see your products. There's so much of this. I feel like when I literally touch the fabric, I get transported back to some of the textiles and prints that I've seen in my homes growing up, whether my relatives, right, grandparents, et cetera, the markets. So tell me a little bit about how you fell in love with this space, especially given where you were brought up and how you were maybe brought up and exposed to things in India. Yeah, um, I think the influence itself didn't come until much later on. You know, I was not influenced by the textiles or the the amount of craft around me growing up. But I still grew up in a very creative environment. And my family is also very creative. And I always found myself more attracted to the art and craft project versus, you know, the other classes that are offered in school as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I always just dedicated more time to projects like batik and embroidery and painting. And um, I think that was always there. But like your average Indian student, the uh, a career in art was not really a path to pursue, you know, mm-hmm. like, the, like, like the average, basically. And textiles itself ha- happened quite randomly, honestly. You know, this during this break I was speaking about uh, in my career, I was spending a lot of time in my parents' place mm-hmm. and I was dabbling in old creative hobbies like textile painting and that didn't get me anywhere. But <laughs> it um, it definitely made me curious to explore craft clusters around the villages there, basically. You said that it didn't lead you anywhere, but I feel like it was a stepping stone towards what you are. And I, I think that's where you are now. Um, And I feel like sometimes we think that, especially in our culture, when a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure to make something happen once you're doing it. And I love, you know, that part of it is us relearning a little bit. It's about the journey. It's okay if it doesn't work out because that seemed to have then brought you to working more with what are the textiles in your village, et cetera. So I, I really love how you're painting also the stepping stone of a path of what led you here. It's not always A to B. It could be yeah. A, Z, G, F, and then go back to like M. Yeah, so I dug around a little bit and then I realized that there was just so many uh, weaving cooperatives in those villages. And it just, re- things really took off from there. I really enjoyed picking up handwoven fabrics from those cooperatives mm-hmm. and then making things with them with the help of um, one of my mom's employees, actually. Oh, wow. And- yeah. And in India, I'm, I'm sure it still exists in India. Uh, there's just Facebook marketplace is pretty huge, right? People mm-hmm. people start their brands on that. I think now we've moved on to Instagram. But back then it was me trying to sell those products on Facebook. And then my mother would try to accompany me uh, to events in big cities like Hyderabad and Chennai and Bangalore uh, to display our work. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and that was just a year, basically. And and uh, and I also felt that I needed to get more hands-on experience because I lacked the background. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I wasn't speaking fluently enough to weavers or different artisans to convey what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sign up for a few days of printing workshops as if that was going to change my life. But I did <laughs> pick up the phone and make a few calls. And yeah. I think... One of the people that I spoke to uh, perhaps sensed that I wanted some serious training and she pointed me to an institute where weavers get their training. 
Um, and I was sold, uh, packed my bags and left for Delhi. And I spent several weeks training in block printing and dyeing with synthetic and natural dyes, just so I could build my confidence and then just speak with a certain jargon and more confidently to people that I would work with in future. And I think once I was in Delhi, it was just, you know, city is big and I spent more time trying to create more learning opportunities. And I went and went to a remote part of Rajasthan and I lived among artisans for some weeks again, learning uh, resisting. Wow. Yeah, all of this was just a journey, I suppose. Absolutely. It's yeah. fascinating to me because you are sort of the poster child for how we're supposed to empathize with the products that we're, you know, not only creating or selling, or if you're partnering with folks who are creating them, um, but to be able to really understand and respect the process with the folks who are really close to it. It's even in corporate, people will say, right, like if you're supporting a function, like go spend time with that team, really understand what they're doing, understand your customer, et cetera. And so I feel like with art and when it comes to this trade piece, it's no different. Um, and I really love how you really put yourself in the shoes of them. And that's not something that we can always say, especially as, you know, these this type of uh, dynamic, maybe you have the better term for it, but taking work that's being made and created by folks who are close to it in different countries and then selling it in maybe a Western market. The other thing I was going to ask you is when you do do a relationship, like I know with you, Jagisha, you did sort of your due diligence to do that. Um, when it comes to a dynamic like that, where it is someone selling something to an audience, but working with artisans somewhere else and possibly in non-Western countries, how much of the process and product belongs to the seller and then the artisan? Like, how do you think about your relationship with your artisans? And do, do you say, this is my work? Like, how does that work? You know, uh, if you had to explain it to someone who's 101 doesn't understand. Yeah, um, I, the language for me has evolved over time as I understand the importance of crediting mm -hmm. and and also the process of manufacturing has also evolved for me. For for example, I work with craft groups as well as individual artisans. And I think this example um, is more relevant to when I work with individual artisans. I, I, I like to look at it as a collaborative process. And uh, these people are always giving their input. Mm -hmm. in producing and sometimes I get a call from one of my weavers that says I don't think this color looks good here and you know we've developed a relationship where they're comfortable enough to give me that feedback or this length doesn't look good this width doesn't look good and then in the end um, it's no longer your work alone mm -hmm. I mean those are just small examples you know there's just yeah. so much more than that so now I think my language is more about this is collaborative this is me and XYZ coming together to put this, uh, to to create this bag or this to create this shawl that you're wanting to buy. Yeah, uh, that, that's really helpful. If, if you had to also, like from a super high level, like what does that process look like for you? Like you have an idea, I want to make, you know, I love your bandanas, for example. So you decide this is something that inspired me. I want to create this bandana. From your your brain to the artisan's hands to then like the final product in your customers, what does that process look like? 
Um, so inspiration can come from anywhere, right? So for the bandanas itself, it was just um, stepping away from your typical bandana layouts and combining nature, which has always served as inspiration for me. And then going with a certain idea to my artisan partners and saying, is this possible mm-hmm. by giving them a drawing? Um, and then sometimes there's tweaking from their side. It's just, I don't think this is possible. Can you change that? Can you change this? Or sometimes it's straight up, yes, we can do it. Um, and then from there, from then on, sometimes there is sampling, sometimes there isn't, sometimes you're stuck with what they produce, sometimes, you know, just yeah. keeping it real out there. Um, but there's, there's a bit of both. So, so from designing to showing them the design and corrections and reviews, sampling, production of several months. And then when it comes here, going through the whole quality control, and then finally it... Um, it's displayed either at an event or on the website. And then I try to tell the story there as well as to how it came about. But there's also, you know, when you meet people in person, you can talk a lot about the product, but it's trickier when you have to present it on a format like website. You want to keep people's attention yeah, and still not go on and on about it. You give them the option to read more and then you uh, let them navigate and uh, create an opportunity for them to learn more, basically. You know, one of the things you and I had initially connected on too was sort of this appreciation, appropriation, tension in home design. And Mm -hmm. when I looked, I I was doing some, you know, just initial research for this episode. And a lot of the websites that are like, how can you consume it, you know, politely and without appropriating it? One of the main things is read the story, understand where it's from. And I think having that option to your point of being able to do that research further and further, and I hope people take more of that time to do so, is really, Mm -hmm. really critical. And sometimes one of the easiest things you can do. Um, So I really like that you emphasize that aspect. Yeah. Um, And also uh, going back to your question on uh, working with artisans and the process of crediting or not, Sometimes as small brands, it's not really possible to mm-hmm. give, out, give out these names simply because it's very nuanced. It's not um, it's not as ethical as we think it is uh, from both ends. Uh, yeah. If you go to a manufacturer, get something done, there's often no guarantee that that same design is being sold to another designer. Or if you share this mm-hmm. information on your social media, um, there's no guarantee that a fellow designer is insist, uh, interested in that and takes that to their manufacturer and says, is it possible for you to make me this? Yeah. Um, so I personally struggle with that. I mean, some some artisans are super ethical and I appreciate that about some of them that I work with as well, but not all are. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, if you if you're borrowing their blocks, if you're borrowing their design, it's a whole other story. You can't just claim <clears throat> claim ownership to that. Absolutely. But if it's your drawings, um, and there's no real agreement, and even if there's a real agreement, there is no guarantee that someone's going to abide by that. Absolutely. Can you tell me about a time that you? Wow. Let me start over. I sounded so HR there. Tell me about a time that you solved a problem, Jagisha. I personally didn't encounter that, but I know people have basically, and oh, I try okay. to be cautious. Yeah. Right. Are there any red flags that someone should look for when 
consuming things that are advertised as ethical. And I ask that with the context of more and more, it's sort of trendy to put these words on labels of organic, gluten-free, sustainable, right? Ethical. And I would hope that it is. At times, it's really not. Um, you know, just recently, we saw the example with the the products Thinks, uh, which were those sort of like really comfortable, very, they were advertised with all those terms for women's underwear, and especially if they had their periods. And it turns yeah. out that a lot of their chem- um actual fabrics do contain chemicals and things that they claim that they didn't. And so yeah. now they're under that whole investigation. And so I kind of got alarmed because I was like, I, you know, that's something that I really never thought about recently more and more is like, literally, I'm sorry to say it if anyone's uncomfortable, but your vagina is so critical to keep pure and to know that there are chemicals. And when you're buying something that you think doesn't is yeah. terrifying. So that brings me, you know, to ask you what, how do people look for that type and like stay on their toes for those types of misleading statements for the sake of consuming? Um, From the consumer perspective, asking questions helps, but I mean, it's not your business or your, it's not your job to go after retailers and uh, businesses and brands to ask uh, the information should be out there actually available for you mm. to quickly access on websites and many of us me including uh, even though i try very hard to keep it eco-friendly i don't always advertise everywhere and maybe i should be doing that because people are being more conscious mm-hmm. uh, of uh, where their product is coming from how is it packaged all, all of that i mean it's i think it's a two-way street asking questions especially when you meet in person at events helps seeing things uh, and asking about the materials and uh, the process of manufacturing and where and what all of that also helps but it's also heavily and most more importantly on the brands to put that information out there and make it accessible I mean like you said uh, we're telling people to spend money on small businesses because we're we're saying they're making in small quantities and are more thoughtful, slow, sustainable, eco-friendly. All these keywords are being thrown ev- everywhere, right? On social media, if you see the profile bio always says all of these keywords. Mm-hmm. But I think these words can't be used so carelessly, I feel. The fact yeah. that so many of us are bringing products from very far away uh, is not a good start for sustainability claims, right? I mean, right. We're, we're using jet fuel. And in addition, there isn't um, enough thought given to materials, like I was saying earlier, in manufacturing, packaging, and just branding. You you can't be claiming that you're making a difference to this planet and the people while also pumping out toxic stuff, chemical dyes, no vetting of processes and um, how are people treating their garment workers and all of that. So the, it's it's, I think, very messy. Absolutely. It's, it's a, and then I think if consumers get overwhelmed too with how much they'd have to think about in order to truly consume responsibly. So we, I think like there's sort of this shared ownership of companies don't want to exactly go into it all. And then consumers also are like, I don't know if I start to analyze, like for example, the whole sustainable, but if it's coming from different countries point that you made, 
I didn't even think about that. And it just sounds now that you said it, it sounds so obvious, but I'm yeah. like, I don't know why I'm thinking like, it's like a life of pie situation where they're like riding on a boat and bringing it to you. I remember like thinking of this a lot when I worked for Facebook, we, um, I was on the internal comms. Like I led the team for the Facebook rebrand in 2019 and they had, this is a product that people really didn't like Facebook and they continue to, you know, have a controversial, uh, response for their with their consumers but they talked about the importance of being transparent to their consumers so if they're using Instagram they need to know that it's from Facebook if they're using WhatsApp they need to know it's from Facebook and that was like a big part of the relaunch of course since then they changed it to Meta so there goes a year of stress but um at the same time it made me really think about you know even if it's difficult sometimes to digest, maybe I'll stop using certain things. I do appreciate the transparency. And I, I like the point that you made about it. The onus should also be on the companies and the people selling to provide that information up front because it can't be investigative journalism for all of us as consumers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we've been touching on this a little bit. And I, one of the things that really struck me when you and I initially chatted was this concept of both of us thinking, are we also overdoing this artisan by artisan thing? And what I mean by that is nowadays, sometimes I think we do get attracted to those terms of like, it's made locally, fair trade, artisan, et cetera. And without also like thinking about it a little bit more, we might buy it and believe it upfront. So I know there's a tension point between like the company and the consumer having to do their due diligence. But if we fall for that type of thing, one thing that's also kind of happening is that we're sort of feeling like from buying artisan, I'm a good person. Like, look at me go. So how do you feel about that topic? Like, have you been kind of thinking about that space of folks buying, thinking that that's the good that they're doing? So I think this savior complex um, exists because of our narratives because we are taking the attention away from the craftsmanship, away from the skill, and then diverting towards our own role in bringing work to someone. Mm -hmm. That's what we're hi highlighting, because we're saying by buying from us, you're supporting artisans. Mm -hmm. And when, I mean, first of all, I think that happens when there's a lack of understanding or appreciating um, traditional crafts. You know, and uh, uh, understanding that craft is basically a way of life for so many artisans. Mm -hmm. And when when you come up with words like slow and conscious made and yada, 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 um, but yeah. the slowness of craft techniques have existed well before our time, you don't need to um, take that attention away from that and place it on yourself. You Absolutely. Know, you, Brands need to understand that it's a mutually beneficial relationship and stop acting like we are saviors of very skilled persons. You know, we, we don't, yeah. you need your designs to be executed and they sometimes need your design intervention so that they can move on. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So once we start seeing it that, that way, I think um, maybe the narrative will change. And now, actually, the current generation of artisans are not just artisans, they're artisan designers. They mm -hmm. know how to design. They're getting an education in that. They know how to operate uh, the various marketing channels. And 
so this narrative of us supporting artisans and saving lives just needs to go <laughs> completely agree i think even in the states like the last few years there's been a lot of this coming up especially even when i i remember like in 2020 when george floyd's murder happened a lot of folks were like okay suddenly like we need to endorse black made business black owned black made yeah. products um and so we started to get very performative as well not thinking about some of the like you know what's the background what am i buying or am i just buying to feel better about like hey look i support i'm not racist right um and so i think that piece too i i, I sort of feel this like energy dwindle even since right even people then knew like this isn't gonna last like everyone's reacting but let's see how long actually people genuinely mean this um yeah. it means doing it all the time not just in certain like february when it's like the history month for example and so to your point you know i think there's so much to learn there about you know this extends beyond you know this is one example the black community in america but also like with you know countries like india and people still calling it like a third world country etc there's this sort of um, we feel better about ourselves when we have it from there. And then the more you can market it that way, I never thought about you. Yeah, I really liked your point of like, it's still selfish in the sense, like you, if you're not purchasing with that type of story and like understanding, you're thinking that you're doing something, but it really only helps you not the actual cause and the culture. Yeah. I mean, and, and also then purchasing power varies. So I'm not, um, we shouldn't be like poo-pooing on uh, people if, uh, artisan made or sustainable uh, items are not something on your radar you know it's mm -hmm. uh it's um yeah it's basically a little bit on the selfish side for sure so going back to what can be um done to sort of solve the savior complex narratives i think um is to recognize crafts persons as um knowledge bearers mm -hmm. you know your equals and like everyone, they need work. I mean, they're not, uh, that's not um, discriminate somebody just because um, you think they're uneducated and need uh, need your support to survive. I mean, they're knowledge bearers of generational craft, you know, they mm -hmm. need work to thrive just like we do and dignifying them through um, living wages and proper working conditions and involving more women, all of that, you know, the list is large, is, mm -hmm. I think, very important. Absolutely. Are there ways that we can work directly, you think, with the artisan and craftsmen to buy from them? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, I mean, I can only speak for India, right? So uh, there, if you're away from India, I think there are some websites, I mean, you know, Radhika, right? Mm -hmm. um, they created a portal um, back in the pandemic. I don't know if it's still alive, but there was a way for people to buy directly from artisans, whether it's yardage, that's fabric, or um, other handicrafts, I believe. Um, there, are, there are actually quite a few e-commerce platforms that are available from India that where you can buy basically from. Awesome. Do you remember the website name for listeners or we can always add it to the show notes? Yeah, I think we'll add it to the show notes. To your point, India, of course, we have that home feeling because we are connected to it. But if it's a different country, I wouldn't really know unless I talk to a friend who's more intimately aware. Uh, mm -hmm. But I remember I was at the store in, I think, Larkspur and they had this uh, home store that was owned by a Caucasian woman, but entirely art and fabrics from India. 
So I was asking about a painting because I just thought, oh, I like these types of royal paintings. I definitely want to get one from India where it's like a portrait of a king or, you know, Muggle um, emperor. And uh, she's like, oh, yeah, it's like on. Uh, it's actually really on sale. It's like five hundred dollars. Like, I'll sell it to you, like, you know, for a little discount. I was like kind of thinking, like, I'll just get it from India. Don't worry. I was just curious, like, who made this? Like, who's the artist, et cetera. But I've sort of become also very because uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts of like how to not also get too jaded. Because uh, nowadays there's like a big sort of like, you know, we saw with the Mahjong board a couple of years ago where these Caucasian women started a sort of, um, they called it, we wanted to make it more accessible and approachable for Americans. So they took the traditional Mahjong concept, a game, and then made it sort of trendy American visuals, et cetera. And there was a huge uproar because they're like, this isn't your culture. This comes from like a very, you know, deep place. Um, and then even just like Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, you see all these companies. And the minute I see an about us, I read that first, like who is making it? And if they are like, I went on a trip to, or they don't put their pictures of who they actually are immediately. I'm like, I feel like this is not actually owned by the people where the items culture is coming from. It must be someone else. Um, so I find myself getting kind of jaded a little bit. How do you prevent that type of cynicism, but also maintain the curiosity? Have you thought about that as you've been in this space so much more than me? Um, to be honest, I think I'm always cynical. I've, I don't think I've uh, maintained any sort of positivity or um, um, just letting it pass. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question because <laughs> I see that in this field a lot. And there isn't actually any uproar uh, with regards to textile appropriation, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, you often you often see um, beautiful blankets that come out of, um, say, Kutch in India, and it's just marketed as Indian wool blanket made by rural artisans, right? right. And very disappointing. And another example, and this this uh, this hits closer home because there's a craft called Kalamkari, which comes from yeah. Andhra Pradesh, actually. And you know, it's it's got so much history. It's uh, found its way to so many countries and garments through ancient trade routes, right? And it ends up uh, on pillowcases and whatnot. And it's marketed as floral pillow. That's it. Mm -hmm. No context, nothing. I mean, sure, it doesn't have religious significance now, but and then also granted, these businesses are not in it for highlighting craft. That was never their intention. But by not sharing a story, you're being part of the problem because you're allowing stories and culture to be lost. I don't think I'm the right person to um, look for any positive outlook on this. I do always roll my <laughs> eyes when I see that. <laughs> and then also these are ripoffs, you know, they're not even, uh, most of the time, they're not authentic weaving or authentic block printing. They are often just um, machine-based screen printing and machine-based weaving. So you're taking away from someone's jobs. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I think about even like taking a step back at the larger picture. Like, do we as South Asians just suck at marketing ourselves? Because somehow our story has gotten taken, right? Like our products, our like visuals have uh, sort of escaped, slipped out of our hands. Like someone just pulled it out and you're like, okay, well, is it because, you know, I think about sort of nerdily, like we're such an oral history country, like back in the day. And I'm like, this is why you're going to write things down. Even HR knows, like document your shit and make sure that people know, like you've done it. It's your work, et cetera. 
why do you think we're in the if if you had to just say like judicious theories, you know, on the world um, that we've come to a place where we're not even able to have control over our own products? Like, are we just not good at marketing or getting that taking that credit? Um, I mean, off the top of my head, right? I haven't given it much thought yeah. as such, but we are manufacturing nations as such. Most of us on the east. So for us, the attraction in scaling our manufacturing businesses has always been, I think, more interesting than telling our stories. And mm -hmm. then the, our generation comes around and thinks more about it. But that was not, I think, historical um, transactions weren't like that, basically. You're, um, you're now looking at uh, Western countries coming and ordering thousands of yards of your work. You would rather do that than... Um, just sit and tell your story and just deny that kind of an order that's going to change your life, you know? Yeah. And when we come from poorer nations, these are, I think, much more attractive uh, options. <laughs> and when we when we sit in comfortable homes where we have incomes, it's easier for us to question all of that. But we have to talk from the point of view of someone who's, who's a daily wage worker as well, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I don't think everyone has the luxury of thinking and trying to tell a story about your country's history and craft history. So, yeah. Yeah. It's Preach, Jagisha. That's a really good point. Um, I, I do hope like, you know, with this privilege that we have, some of us now of being able to afford more of the time, like if we are um, perhaps not day-to-day -day traders or, you know, like you and I are talking now, that we're able to do a little bit of that on behalf and kind of be a representative so that people better understand where things are coming from. Because to your point, even like I started to settle for the bare minimum where if they just say it's from India and like, thank God, at least they gave the credit, you know, that like it's from India, Oh yeah, you know, but it's like actually just like the bare minimum that you could do. So when you said like that description of like from rural artists, I'm like, at least they acknowledge it's a rural artist, but still that's not really going back to, you know, like, is it from a specific country? Like what artisan, you know, shop did it come from, et cetera? Like, how are those practices? Um, and so the, it's, it's really eye opening to hear your perspective. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. Um, and I think the point about made in India might just be a law or like a regulation, you know, it's if it's yeah. not, would you put it on? It, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to play a bingo game at Anthro is like, is it made in Th Thailand, India, like, you know, Pakistan or, you know, Malaysia, or, you know, like it's always like one of those three or four yeah. um, that it's made from. And I don't know if sometimes this is where I get kind of, you know, especially when it comes into, you mentioned earlier, religious territory, I become most protective. So mm. for example, uh, I think a year ago, I went to Anthro and they started to sell a Tulsi flavor, uh, not flavor, scented um, candle. I don't eat candles. Um, but I remember feeling a little bit like, Ugh, when I saw that and I reacted a bit stronger than I do to other things that get sold because Dulce is just such a, uh, there's such a deep value and meaning to religion, to our, it's sacred in a way, right? Like it, there's so much of a meaning to our families and medicine. And to me, it just felt like it was being so uh, glossed over in that way. Um, and so I just feel like slowly more and more of those products are happening. And that's something that I was even reading is like, just stay away from religious things if you're going to yeah. start selling because 
you know, I'm not going to put a Jesus Christ in my house because I don't know enough about Christianity and Jesus's story. Like I would just be a really bad representative of having his, you know, kind of such a sacred piece in my house. So yeah. I, I just wish more people thought like that, but are there other trends that you see where you're like, you know, in the next few years I'm seeing this pick up, you know, for example, like Dulce that you think could be, uh, you know, we could do a better job of educating ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think the sensitivities need to be more in tune because the populations are migrating constantly. You have people from different countries living in this country. Um, you're no longer um, speaking to just people of your race. So people are going to be more sensitive when you take items of their culture and make products out of it and irrelevant products too, you know, um, and then spin your own story about, oh, Tulsi is super therapeutic or um, use Ganesha pillow or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, <right>? totally. <laughs> they, I'm sure they exist. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's the key when more people of different um, coming from different parts of the world start living in a same geographical space there are more voices, there are more opinions, there are more feelings, and there are more backgrounds. So um, it becomes, it, it was never right in the first place, but it becomes even more uh, murkier because of people living under that same roof called the country, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So to the first point, I don't mind if people that are not from, say, India, educate me on things I know. I don't know. I don't know everything about uh, Ashwagandha or yoga. Like, I don't mm -hmm. mind. But my first reaction still is skepticism because mm -hmm. uh, I, we all tend to think we know our country better than a everyone else. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, that's that's a fact. Um, but in terms of coming to trends, uh especially with design trends, which I observe, I do think that they tend to hop from one craft to another. Mm. And uh, there will be a small handful of designers that will introduce a trend suddenly here. I mean, it's probably already existed forever in India. And then going back to Kalamkari, Kalamkari has had its, uh, it, it was just a rage in the past few months. These floral pillows were everywhere. They're everywhere. And... Um, so for a few months that goes on, everyone has that and every nobody really knows its origin. And the sad part is within a few months, it becomes another craft. Like the cut shawls had their moment and they're kind of a little bit dwindling now. Kalamkari mm -hmm. has its moment and it's something else now. So my worry is that what happens to those artisans who've been used? Yeah. And it's done now. So uh, I, I think my last trip to India also... Somebody was commenting, one of the artisans was commenting on uh, how business has slowed down. But mm -hmm. I don't think at that point the cut blankets were still slowing down. But that made me think, I mean, once the designers are done with this particular craft, what next? Mm. You know, and most of us, many of us actually pay attention to those trends. And we tend to get try to get a slice of that because it's trending. And because maybe you think that you have a better story to tell um of that craft may or may not work you're not you're not a trending designer so it may not work but yeah <laughs> uh, i mean you as in like here in this context me so, i took it personally <laughs> no no i didn't mean i didn't mean you i mean like no, so kidding. for example if i try to jump on that bandwagon it may or may not work because i'm not popular one and two um people don't necessarily care for those stories because they're too far like in few in between basically mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not being told frequently enough for people to care. Um, 
and then the other thing is also you know the pricing is a big issue so designers can charge a kalamkari pillow like 400 bucks Mm-hmm. You you know everything has a value, and I sometimes feel like it's not worth that. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm saying that even though I'm in this sector, sometimes it's not worth that. This is all like profit margins that are just very high, right? And then when you come along and then you try to sell this similar piece for a more affordable price, um, two questions are asked: Is it a fake? Because mm-hmm. it's not expensive enough. Uh, and then the second thing is, I mean, what I'm trying to do is when I try to price my stuff, I try to keep eco-friendly items more accessible. Yeah. But it's like a cash 22 situation, right? So, I mean, you want more people to do sustainable things uh, because you want them to buy so that then eventually uh, the production becomes more economically friendly for us. Uh, mm-hmm. Things cost so much. But then at the same time, if people don't already buy, we don't have the money to invest. Right. Um so, yeah, so what consumers can do is just recognize these. Um, someone from someone from another country, what are they going to know about this floral pillow, really? Mm. Like, who, who's going to tell them it's actually Kalamkari? Go study it. They're not. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, you know, going. you had mentioned your story of, you know, growing up in India, then Europe, meeting your husband in the U.S. How do you feel, you know, you've kind of hit a lot of, like, the you know, there's so many more continents, of course, but you hit some major hemispheres of the world. How is your point of view informed by your experience from India, from Europe, and now in the States? Mm, you know, I never gave that a very serious thought until very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because I was always, um, I always felt and still feel like an outsider wherever I go. And simply because the amount of time I spent in each of these places hasn't been enough or hasn't been long enough for me to form enough thoughts or identifying with those places. Um, I feel um, I feel inclusion has been more of a recent phenomenon. Maybe that's something to do with it. But even when I lived in Europe, I feel... Um, I, I felt like an outsider. The rare times that I would try to cook any Indian food, I was always made to feel guilty because it smells. And then I got complaints from landlords and roommates. So you always, oh wow, um, at least I always wanted to feel invisible. There are when people are friendly, but they tend to keep you at an arm's distance when they don't know much about a, a mm. culture. You know, it's, I think yeah. that's something very commonly found in um, Western nations. I feel. Yes. And um, among friends, too, I mean, we're talking about 10 years ago, among friends, too, there would always be some offhanded racist comments. And this this was, again, like 10 years ago. And it's not uh, it, it was always passed off as a joke. You know, oh, I'm just kidding. You know, it's it's more mm. a recent phenomenon to stick up for yourself on telling people what's appropriate and inappropriate in, um, in, in any conversational situation. Uh, but I think that didn't really allow me to form any sort of identity or I I always wanted to stay invisible, I I feel. So maybe Mm. that's why I didn't give it as much thought. And here too, I moved, what, six years ago. Um, It still feels not long enough to form those strong bonds with uh, people in general. And I never really felt settled anywhere for long. So I think you end up making your own uh, traditions, your own... um, little cultural world and 
um, stuff like that, basically. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I'm sorry that you experienced that. And also, I think a lot of folks who do feel that outsider, not only feeling, but, you know, kind of um, when they're encountering uh, circles and if, if they continuously get that energy, it's uh, you sort of, I think to your point, like that is sort of a common response is to become, you know, how do I shrink myself? How do I become as unnoticeable as possible and move between spaces? Yeah. In, in some way it becomes a interesting kind of a silver lining is maybe, I'm not saying it's great, but there's a sort of observation mentality that comes into play then because you're observing so much and listening and really like taking in what's around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's hard, I feel like in the States is like, it's such a main character energy and like protagonist mentality of like, especially when sure. we're marketing like Instagram and, you know, it's become, you know, part of the beauty of it is that like, we have so much access now to opportunity to your point, like Facebook marketplace, a place where people in India would sell their products at the same time. It's like, you really have to be always like telling your story, telling your story. And I'm biased because I'm in communications, but at the same time, uh, you know, we've been talking more about like, what if you're not someone who's the loudest per- like voice in the room? What if you're someone mm-hmm. who doesn't like to ask a bunch of questions in a meeting, for example? Um, how has marketing been for you? I'm just curious and mm-hmm. you can take this out if you wanted the recording. But when it comes to Instagram and places where you have to put yourself out there and like put your story forward and pictures, et cetera, how have you been feeling about that? Oh, um, I'm actually terrible at marketing. I'm, I'd rather stay behind the scenes, creating, or just sort of minding my own business. No pun intended there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 tough to um, it's it's tough to put yourself out there, tell a brand story where the products don't sell themselves if you don't. Mm-hmm. So there's always, I, I think, inconsistency always shows for me at least because. Um, my heart is not in it. I'm not a big seller. I, I don't do that at events. I don't do that online. I, I I like for the products to speak for themselves, but they don't. I mean, people want you to talk about them. So yeah. I, I think I end up um, talking about backstories and uh, history and all of that. And it's not necessarily intentional, but reflecting back, that's what makes me feel like I end up talking about, hey, did you know this textile has this history and um, it's, it's those narratives are more prominent in the way I talk on social media. That's fair. And there's always an audience for everything. I think just like someone, someone's out there for everyone kind of mentality. I think there's an audience also like space for everyone. So yeah, um, I'm sure like, I appreciate that you have a lot of that content because it's stuff that I don't know, for example. So going back to initially when we were talking about your business, I, I'd love for people who are listening to learn a little bit more about G clothing and living generally, but also what are, what do you feel like you've done to also um, address some of the concerns we mentioned in part of the process where you feel like G clothing and living, we can consume knowing that I'm doing the right thing, you know, here. For those that don't know, I create functional pieces of um, textiles like clothing accessories and home decor. And then I try to keep it timeless And through them, I'm mainly highlighting the craft itself and a more conscious way of shopping or consuming. Um, The processes involved in my products is so fascinating to me that I try to share that with people. And because, uh, you know, once you share the process of designing, materials used, people often feel 
differently about that piece. Mm-hmm. Often they're not even aware of the skill, uh, the craftsmanship that it takes to produce a handcrafted item. And with and actually with textiles, it's even more complex because textiles are everywhere. Yeah. And, and they're they're available at very inexpensive prices and exploitative prices as well. And so it's mostly been an educational journey. So I think that's mostly what my offering has been so far. And I'm hoping it will continue to evolve as it should. That is super helpful to understand not only how kind of your process, but also why uh, you believe in your product. I certainly understand why the impact that you're creating, like just purchasing your product, having it in my home. I, I really, really see what you're talking about. Um, I love how simple like it, it. the collection is not overwhelming. It's very straightforward what your point of view is, what you're trying to convey. It's something that I, I might have seen in you know, paintings from before, but also it feels contemporary. And I I love that you've married that. And it has really encouraged me to think more about maybe buying less for my home, but with more um, time and responsibility, I don't, then that way I can spend more money because I'm doing it less often um, versus just kind of piling up in home goods. Like, you know, I just need to fill this corner, for example, like being really intentional. Um, I'm starting to also, the older I get, kind of feel like the energy you bring into your house, like the items I bring in, et cetera, I'm more conscious of. So I really have to say like, I have such a five-star experience with your products um, and I'm really rooting for you and how G evolves. Oh, thank you for saying that. And thank you really for purchasing those products. Because I think that's really the messaging, right? Buy less, but buy more meaningful if you have to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you and if if one can afford to choose the more thoughtful pieces, if you can, basically. Absolutely. And I understand it's not always possible, like, you know, if, especially if we're oh, thinking yeah. about affordability in this country has just <laughs> with inflation just been going crazy. But if you can, I think if, um, it's it's really a lovely opportunity to participate in that system. Um, so are you ready for our chip chip round, Jagisha? I guess I am. <laughs> <laughs> no choice. Um, first of all, I'll, I'll start off a little easy. What's your favorite South Asian food? Oh, biryani. Yes. Very good choice. Not that there's a right or wrong. Um, what was your favorite movie in 2020, 2022? Oh my God. I don't think I remember. I enjoyed the Mandalorian as not as a show, but not a movie. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's a really good one. Um, who is, uh, someone on your list with your husband where if you met this celebrity, you get a free pass one day. I don't mean literally, I don't mean to make your husband insecure, but oh. as a, like for fun. As a celebrity? Um, 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 I don't know if I even give this a thought, but I'm probably sure there are some very attractive people out there, mind-wise and looks-wise. Oh my God, I'm not good at this rapid fire. <laughs> the rapid fire should end right now. <laughs> I love it. You're actually like such a pure like partner. You're like, I don't even think about it. I'm like, I have my name. I I totally like think, oh, that's that's a very good looking person. Or I just totally um, agree with their point of view. But I didn't think of it that way. Like nobody comes to mind right now. That's true. Do you have a celebrity crush? Ryan Gosling. Awesome. Good choice. Um, He fine. Uh, Who is the designer we should all follow? Who's the what? A designer we should follow in the home space. 
Mm. Other than you. Oh, I'm not even big enough to be considered. <laughs> but, uh, well, I'll keep it local. I love landed interiors. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I mean, I know big names, but I think uh, there's something to keeping it local. And uh, they're not always uh, um, social media designers are not always the ones to look out for. Absolutely. I agree yeah. with that. What's your favorite way to express yourself? What medium? Hmm. Um, I, I do sing a lot. So I guess there's that. But it's not good singing, it's singing. <laughs> So, can we hear a song? Uh, <laughs> I knew that was the answer, but sometimes you just got to take a shot. <laughs> <laughs>